0: The scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to his likeness of his son, that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. He, Who he is he that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died more than that, was raised to life. Is that the right hand of God and also interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine? nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless the word of the Lord.
1: Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In valley... Memorial Park up in Nevada lies the tomb of Hazrat Angza, the first Islamic Sufi master ever to die in the United States. This tomb, which occupies, oh thirty or forty plots. It's about half as big as this sanctuary with a landscaped exterior. It took decades and decades to complete. It was designed by his son. the manager of Valley Memorial Park tells me it costs almost a million dollars. It is filled with gold lattice and leaf and mosaic tiles and outside and inside gleaming black marble. Soft music loops endlessly inside the locked tomb offering up melodies with seemingly no one to hear. It was created to provide, and I quote, an everlasting memorial, end quote, to a man who is said to have, quote, infinite wisdom. Elaborate and expensive as that shrine is, it seems, at least to me, less a tribute to everlasting life and infinite wisdom than a stern, stark witness to the seeming finality of the power of death. When Johnny Carson received the Man of the Year Award from uh, Harvard University's Hasty Pudding Society, he was asked what he wanted for his epitaph, and he replied, I'd like it to read, I'll be right back. (laughs) When he died almost exactly ten years ago. It was not with the luxury of the king of the comeback or the perspective of the comic, but as a soul in the grip of emphysema who could no, no longer even draw a breath. Where can there be power and assurance that any of us can possibly faith death as victor? Edgar Allan Poe embodies this haunting question in his poem, The Raven. You remember that one of the words which continues in the refrain throughout that is, Nevermore, Quoth the raven, Nevermore illustrative of the whole point or the last lines, the lamplight or the raven streaming throws a shadow on the floor and my soul from out that shadow shall be lifted. Nevermore. And so it voices the fear that all of us have had and should have had that nevermore will life return, nevermore shall love return, nevermore shall our youth return, nevermore shall... Our parents return, That's that haunting refrain that is the seat of many of our fears, nevermore. Thomas Hardy once wrote, the two ultimate questions of life are, first, has anyone ever cheated death? And second, if they have, did they make a way for me to cheat death too? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the depiction of the most total and complete and satisfying, really the only, real victory of life over death that the human heart has ever heard. The resurrection declares that the world will be unmade and remade and made right. There's a Greek word that is used only two times in the New Testament. In Matthew 19 and in Titus 3, the word is pellagencia, pellagencia. I wasn't, I didn't write this in my notes, but let's say it together. Pelagensia. Do you hear the word Genesis in there? Because it is there, it's the beginning. Pelagensia means the renewal of all things, the rebirth of the cosmos. Listen in Matthew 19, at the Pelagensia, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, everyone who has lost. Houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive 100 times as much and eternal life, for many who were first will be last, and the last will be first. Some of you, maybe many of you, have received an email this week from our own Doug and Lita, whose field of assignment has... Changed Always difficult, always at stretch, but now in a daily reminder of the cost of death. And they say we have things to do for our children and our grandchildren and our aging parents, and we believe they need us. We pray that God will leave us here, but if he takes us, is it worth it? And their answer, if I can paraphrase it in my words, is it's the only thing. It's worth it. Because all of history is flowing through a point and a time and a place in which there will be a palagintia, in which all things will be purified and purged and reborn. There will be a cosmic birth. In Titus, the word is used, Jesus saved us not because of righteousness, but through the washing of rebirth and renewal. That's palagintia by the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying at the moment you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to your life with the power of resurrection and the power of palagensia. History itself will be changed. The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann in one sentence, in one phrase, describes the power of palagensia and the movement from the darkness of Good Friday to the victory of resurrection. He says, God weeps with us so that we may one day laugh with him. All this is the description of what is involved in the resurrection. The resurrection is the key to everything. If Jesus Christ did not come and not not only die for us the cross, but rise for us on the third day, you don't have Christianity. If Jesus Christ did not live and die and rise from the dead as a historical person, at a historical point in time, and in a particular place, then Christianity is a sham. In It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart, playing George Bailey, gets to see what life would be like if he had never lived. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul ponders, he poses the question and answers it, what would life be like? If Jesus Christ had not actually, in history, truly been raised from the dead? He voices the answer If Christ is not raised, then your faith is worthless, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And you are still in your sins, if Jesus still lies in the grave, if he is perpetually the sufferer and never the victor, then you and I are hopelessly lost. If Jesus remained in the grave, then when you die, you will also stay dead. Since Christians have no Savior but Christ and no Redeemer but Christ and no Lord but Christ, if Christ is not raised, if he is not alive, our Christian life is lifeless. We would have nothing to justify our faith, our Bible study, our preaching, our witnessing, our service for Him, our worship of Him, nothing to justify our hope in this life or in the next. We would deserve nothing but the compassion and pity that is reserved for fools. Christianity is built out of these truths. The resurrection is the key to all things. That God created the world. That God sustained the world. That in Jesus Christ, God came into the world and lived the life we should have lived and died on the cross and rose on the third day and came again, is coming again. And reigns and rules until that day. These are all objective, historical facts. Not spiritual ideas. And if they are false, if they did not happen, and if they will not happen, then Christianity is false and it should not be believed. We walk by faith, but we do not walk by blind faith. So before jumping very briefly into our text this morning, by way of introduction, let me name just a few of the evidences by which we walk. First is the evidence of the empty tomb. Circle the globe, and you will find mausoleums and shrines and tombs, commemorating sacred lives that are passed on, founders of other religions, but there is no memorial for Jesus. There is no black, marbled, enshrined tomb for him. Could the critics of Jesus provided his body? You can be assured they would have, but they never have and they never will. His tomb is empty. Secondly, there are the appearance of Jesus. He appeared to the women unthinkable to use them as witnesses in the ancient world. The only reason the record could have recorded it that way is because that's the way it happened. He appeared first to the women and the, to Peter and John and the twelve and then to five hundred. Events which were witnessed while they were still alive. Indeed, six years, within six years of the events themselves, we have that recorded evidence, unthinkable and Ancient historiography does not guarantee it's true, but it does mean that the anachronistic fallacy, what C.S. Lewis calls the anachronistic fallacy, that all these things could be believed because primitive minds were gullible and myths could arise a hundred years later. Um, that's the anachronistic fallacy. We think that primitive minds were different than us. no. It was as hard, or harder, for both the Jewish and the Greek minds to believe in the resurrection than it is ours. The Jewish mind was unprepared for this. There would be for those that subgroup that had any concept of the resurrection. There could be no resurrection until the end of history. Has injustice been made right? Had the poor been made wealthy? Has everything been leveled, and Jesus could not be raised. No one could be. And the Greeks would not be looking for the resurrection of a body unearthed. It has exploded on the human mindset. The Jewish mindset was not ready to incorporate into the monotheistic faith of the Jews this one God That grace and faith could come from the Lord Jesus Christ and from God the Father and the power of His Spirit. Suddenly, immediately, the Hebrew faith was revolutionized. It was exploded in a way in which there is no accountability for, other than the resurrection happened. The appearances to the disciples. Then there's the evidence of the early church. A historical fact is that a defeated, discouraged, dispirited band of disciples was turned from fearfulness to turn, in one generation, the world upside down. No explanation could be given for at least their understanding than that. They were Easter people. They had seen the risen Christ alive and real and in their presence. Evidences go on and on and on. But we are journeying through the book of Romans. And we have come to the 8th chapter, which is one of the two great chapters the entire book on the Spirit of God. But the resurrection is mentioned here too. Look at verse 34. Christ Jesus who died. But more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for Him. In this great chapter on the Spirit, the Spirit is referred to 17 times, but not here at the end of the chapter. So what is going on in this chapter on the Spirit, that at the conclusion and the climax of the chapter, the Spirit isn't mentioned? I believe what is shared here is we have at the conclusion the work of the Spirit. What the Spirit accomplishes, and see, there are a series of affirmations. I am persuaded, I am convinced, I am assured. This passage is full of rhetorical questions. Who will bring a charge against us? The answer is no one. Who will separate us? The rhetorical answer, of course, is nothing. We have an assurance from God, we have a sense in our hearts, we have an experience which is the work of the Holy Spirit of our lives. And if this is the climactic work of the Holy Spirit, then, by inference, this is the major problem in your life and in mine. How can I claim, how can I rehearse, how can I be assured of the presence and person and power of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit applies this work in several ways. It is, first of all, through the the soap, the cleansing power of forgiveness. We are liberated. We are set free. We are forgiven. But not only does the first part of the chapter tell us that, we are not only pardoned, but we are adopted. We are put in the family. It is... It's one thing to be no longer held accountable. It's another thing to be called and engrafted into the family, adopted as sons and daughters in a way in which we could never leave. That's in the first part of the 8th chapter. In this last part of the 8th chapter, there is another personal application of the Spirit. Namely, Alan Torrance has spoken here from the pulpit. His father, James Torrance, both great Scottish theologians, has, has really noted... Uh, His uh, The center of his career, and his son Alan has taken up on this, is to highlight what many have, have neglected, the intercessory work of the Son on our behalf. Do you see it there in the text? The Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for us. It means that we are pardoned. There is no charge against us. Not because God is sentimental and loving and merciful. He may be, but that's not the evidence. It is because He intercedes for us in the court of justice. I have paid the penalty. I have paid the price. And because of that, their sin is paid. It is not the mercy of God that exonerates us and liberates us. It is His justice. It is His law. And Jesus stands as our intercessor before the throne of God in his justice seat. We are legally pardoned, absolved, and liberated by the intercessory work of God in Christ. There is a second thing that assaults us. Not only our interior fear, our knowledge of our guilt, our our worry that we're not forgiven... But there's an outside, an exterior assault. Often, when we become Christians or in the midst of our Christian life, we think there are are things that simply cannot and will not happen to us. Isn't that the benefit of being a Christian? But they can, and they do. Christians experience personal depression, and difficult marriages, and financial misfortune, and the death of children. Anything bad that can happen, and does happen, will happen, and has happened to Christians. And they happen to Paul. And now Paul writes, now that I'm a Christian, there are certain... Things I must ask, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Then he says, as it is written. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quote from Psalm 44. As if Paul is saying the people of God in all ages, not just the New Testament, But also the Old Testament have also faced these terrible oppositions and these terrible things. And when they come, the cry of the heart, understandably, is where is God in all of this? Can God love me? Can this happen to me if I'm his adopted child? And then Paul says in this magnificent verse, no, in all these things. We are more than conquerors, not just victors, not just just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Through Christ who loved us. A profound theological point in that tense. It's aorist. Not through God who loves us, who forgives us, who wants us, but through God who loved us, accomplished in the past tense. Our eyes are being called to the cross. Don't you know that if Jesus would not keep his own son from going into the depths of hell for love and you and me, he will never forsake you nor leave you. That is the assurance. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, the text of it, has another hymn in which the line goes, everything is needful that he sends, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. If God loves without the cost of the cross, without the cost of hell, it's just an abstraction. It's just a sentiment. It's just... Philosophical It costs him nothing. Felix Brooks says of the resurrection, Death is strong, but Christ is stronger. Stronger than the dark, the light, stronger than the wrong, the right, faith and hope triumphant say Christ will rise on Easter Day. If there is a Great romance in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Some say that's the weakness of the cycle, that there is not a great romance. I think there is, and if there is, it is the one that takes place between Aragorn and Eren. Tolkien writes upon Aragorn's death these amazing lines. Arwen, she begs him not to go, and... He lies down, he says, this is part of the romance, this is part of the story, this is where we all go. And as he lies down to die, and dies, Tolkien writes these lines about him. There is a great beauty that was revealed in him so that all who after came there looked at him in wonder. For they saw that the grace of his youth and the valor of his manhood... And the wisdom and majesty of his age were blended together, and long there he lay, an image of the kings of men in glory undimmed before the breaking of the world. What I believe Tolkien is trying to get across is that there is a beauty that children have that they lose. And there is another kind of beauty that young men and women have in the midst of their strength and Nobility and ardor that children don't have. And then there's a majesty and a wisdom and a nobility about older people that younger people don't have. And all these beauties, Tolkien and the Bible, I believe, are saying all these glories, of course, are just sort of spread out, but in our resurrection, they will be united. Here's the promise of the resurrection. To those whose lives are joined with God in Christ, there is an energy that endures, that conquers death and hell and that will change your life forever. And the power that raised Christ is the same power of regeneration with which God makes us alive. Our great assurance that we can know God is the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection. It is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Christ's resurrection is both the type and the cause of the spiritual resurrection of you and me. Christ's resurrection is not just a theological tidbit that we confess and a way from which we move. Christ's resurrection is the vindication of Christ that his death is sufficient for us and guarantees that we are now raised and that we will be raised. That resurrection power is at work in us now, power which brings life from death, and it's God's transforming power. It is the power that takes people who want nothing to do with God, and who are selfish like you and me, and who have no interest in Christianity and turns them into people who love God and want to serve others. The power of the resurrection means there is nothing that can prevent us from carrying out God's purpose. There is no power that can withstand him, no enemy that can defeat him, no influence that can match him. No evil that can dissuade him, no antagonist that can derail him. No foe that can stand against him, no other name that can oppose him. The power that brings death to life. Is the power with which and in which Christ at this very moment reigns and rules. So may we declare it this Easter Sunday and all Sundays and all the days in between, with our lips and with our lives, with our words and with our walk, with our days and all of the days that God gives us to live. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Thank you, Father, for giving us the assurance of hope and showing us how it works. And we do ask that you would teach us how to go about taking hold of these things. Paul powerfully prayed for us to experience them. We ask that you would help every one of us hearing this today to know what our next steps need to be. Please open them to us now. We can't wait to see you as you are, but open our hearts to you now. Break into our innermost being so we can know the hope that makes us not ashamed. We pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.